Welcome back to Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. I'm Jack Llewellyn, and as always, thank you for joining me. So we've got something interesting today, but before I get there, I want to talk about two things. First and foremost, today is the one-year anniversary, not to the day, but pretty darn close, of our first podcast. And I got to tell you, a year ago when I started this, I had no idea what I was doing, which is probably obvious to anybody who's gone back recently and listened to some of the early podcasts. And I had no idea that we would end up doing this for a year. And I got to be honest, I love it. I appreciate absolutely everyone who has listened to any of the episodes, anyone who has made comments, made suggestions, made referrals. Thank you all. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, And I'm looking forward to the next year. I'm not running out of topics or information and and certainly not running out of enthusiasm. So we're going to keep going. As always, comments, issues that you want to see us address, bring them up. Looking forward to the dialogue. All right, number two. By way of introduction, as I want to go back to last week's discussion about Dr. Umberto Alvarez Machine. When we talked about, or when I talked about Dr. Machine's recitation of events of February 7, 8, and 9, of Kiki Camarena's interrogation and his viewing of it, his being at Lope de Vega, his Uh, perception of things that happened at the Guadalajara airport. Keep in mind, all of that came from the DEA-6 report from or about the interview given by Dr. Machine voluntarily. Remember, he waived his rights after he was arrested in El Paso, Texas. I was not... I was not vouching for or saying that everything in there was correct. Now, certainly some elements of what Dr. Machine said ring true. But as we've talked about before, whether we're talking about Jorge Godoy or Rene Lopez Romero or Hector Cervantes or others, of course, some of what they say rings true because they were there for certain things. But that doesn't mean everything they say is true. And the difficult part, as we've talked about, is figuring out which part is true and which part isn't, which part has independent corroboration, which part can be substantiated, and which part is just made up. The thing that I've always found interesting about the Machine case is his reaction to being in the United States, his agreement to talk to Agent Bereas and others, juxtaposed with the government's intense desire to bring Dr. Machine into the United States, to put him on trial, and then their abject failure to make a case against 
Dr. Machine, right? They, they kidnap him off the streets of Mexico. They get him into the United States. They bring him into trial in front of Judge Rafiti in the Federal District Court of Los Angeles, you know, the Central District of California. And they don't even make a prima facie case. They can't even get the case to the jury. And as an aside, in my opinion, had they done that, he would have been convicted because that's the nature of the case and and these types of cases and juries. But it didn't even get that far. Right? He, Dr. Machine was acquitted, released, and sent back to Mexico where he lives. That's the fascinating part about this case to me. So to the extent it wasn't clear, everything talking about... What Dr. Machine did, saw, witnessed those days, including the interrogation of Agent Cameron on two days. Remember, he said he saw him twice. That's what Dr. Machine said. Not what I say is true, not what I believe, but what he said. And it's that incongruity between his statements the government's actions, and then the prosecution's case that is the perplexing and interesting and intriguing part of the Machine case and something we will be returning to in the next couple of weeks. Okay. To today. One of the things that I love about doing this podcast is I get to do a lot of research I'm a nerd. I'm a geek. I love research. I like looking at different things. I like reading publications. So I do a lot of research during the week on cartels, what's going on in Mexico. I subscribe to lots of newsletters. And one of the things I do is I look at some academic works. The beauty is I look at all this stuff and you don't have to necessarily, right? So I take a lot of the news reports, I condense them down into a quick format and I put them into my newsletter, which you should subscribe to. And then I look at some of these larger reports and I try to present them if I find them interesting or if I think there's a unique angle, I present them to you in a half hour or so that you can listen to and you don't have to read these long reports. So one we want to talk about today, one I studied a lot this week, and I want to make sure that I get all the get the title exactly right. So it's the Organized Crime and Violence in Mexico Special Report 2021 by the Justice in Mexico Initiative, University of San Diego, Department of Political Science and International Relations. Okay. This is about a 70-page report with lots of data, lots of information, and stuff that I found very interesting. But what was most interesting for me is the focus during this presentation on the evolution of the cartels in Mexico. And there's some unique, maybe not unique, interesting perspectives presented some of which I don't necessarily agree with. And as we've talked about before, I mean, this is, this is from a major 
institution of higher learning in America. It's by people who do this for a living, who've studied a lot. So I'm not going to sit here, you know, and tell you they're wrong, but I am going to tell you that interested people, informed people, and I'm going to put myself at least on the margins of the informed category, can have different views on certain things. So I'm going to present the material with respect to the evolution of the cartels from this report as they present it. And then I'm going to raise a couple of questions as we go through, not again to, you know, to inflame my ego or to say that they're wrong, but to incite thinking, dialogue, and conversation. You know, one of the things that I really think we're missing these days is the idea that reasonable people can disagree, and that's good, right? Let's have a dialogue. Let's have a conversation. Let's have both sides learn. So that's where we're going to head. Now, the report says it does two things in, a, in particular with relevance to our discussion today. One is it focuses on trends in organized crime and violence in Mexico. And two, it provides a comprehensive overview of the significant public security challenges faced by Mexico. One of the things that it talks about in the report is the idea that the Mexican drug trade has been heavily influenced over the years by law enforcement and anti-drug efforts elsewhere in the world. So, for example, it starts off by saying in the 1970s, Mexico was the major exporter of heroin into the United States, supplying as much as 80% of the U.S. market at one point. But it also says that advancement in, in um, the heroin trade in from Mexico into the United States was the result of the disruption of the Turkish, Italian, French supply networks. You know, the movie The French Connection. Then in the late 70s, early 80s, remember we've talked in the past about the counter-drug efforts in the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean and how that impacted the flow of cocaine from South America into the United States. The result of that, in part through the efforts of Miguel Angel Felix Gallardo, Juan Mataballesteros, and others, was the increased trafficking and the use of Mexico as a major transit point for cocaine trafficking from South America into the United States. And then as there have been um, efforts to slow that trade, both in the United States and Mexico and in South America, Mexican traffickers have diversified their products primarily, at least recently, through the use of synthetic narcotics, synthetic opioids, and we've talked about those in the past. Something else that they 
talk about in the report that I found very interesting, and and I'm going to read some of this directly to you, is it it talks about the structure, and they focus a lot, and I, I really find this interesting, but on the structure of the Mexican gangs and cartels over time. And it says, and and again, I'm just going to read a little bit because I think it's really valuable. Once characterized by quiet collusion among a few monopolistic illicit firms, Mexico's drug trade has become highly competitive. Whereas there were only two major drug trafficking organizations in Mexico during the 1980s, namely the Gulf Cartel and the Guadalajara Cartel, the number grew to four in the 1990s as the Guadalajara Cartel splintered into the Tijuana, Juarez, and Sinaloa Cartels. Over the 2000s and 2010s, further splintering led to the emergence of at least a dozen significant regional groups. Lacking the capacity for large-scale international drug trafficking, many regional criminal organizations have sought to remain profitable by diversifying into various forms of violent crime, including extortion, kidnapping, human smuggling, and various forms of theft. So... To me, that's an interesting idea, right? That um, there is an idea, there is an element that suggests, and you can talk about this in international relations, international politics, the amount of security that comes from having a smaller group of people. And you can take this even back to the, uh, the Cold War. So you got Russia and the United States, and there's a lot of political science that'll talk about the fact that, you know, uh, two isn't necessarily the worst number because both sides are aware of what the other side is doing. Um, there, there aren't other as many other influences and things. But then when China rose to prominence, all of a sudden now you've got three people and you can have coalitions you can have um you know back channel communications you can it just becomes more chaotic in the term of uh you know kind of game theory and and analysis and then if you add more and more players it becomes worse and worse well what they're saying in this report is in the 1980s you really had the gulf and guadalajara cartels We'll talk in a little bit again about my personal concern or issues with calling it the Guadalajara cartel in the 1980s, but we'll address that a little bit later. But then it says, okay, so you had two, so that was kind of stable. Then you add a little bit more and you end up with at least four, right? Gulf, Tijuana, Juarez, and and Sinaloa. And then you end up with a lot of regional ones. That makes it even more chaotic and allows for or precipitates different types types of criminal activity and it precipitates more intercartel violence one of the things that that the report also says is hey what's really interesting is 
the degree to which the cartels in the 70s and 80s in particular profited from and were able to rise as a result of their corruption of high-level government officials, their infiltration into law enforcement agencies, and that that changed somewhat in the 80s and 90s as there became more uh, counter-drug efforts both in the United States and Mexico and in some joint initiatives, as well as um, the change in government structure in Mexico to become slightly more democratized. So they say, um, I, I love this, this line, several factors have contributed to the unvirtuous cycle of competition and violence. So leadership disruptions, they say, is one of them. And that was really due to the idea, the the law enforcement perspective, both of in the United States and Mexico, kind of, of focusing on the kingpins. Right? If you get the main players, that's going to impact the cartels more than taking a few, you know, uh, street soldiers off the streets. So, and and here's where we're gonna we we want to digress for a second. They say, in particular, leadership disruptions have contributed to a pattern of internal schisms and encroachments by rival organizations that fueled violence. All right, now please listen to this carefully as an illustration. In the 1980s, the torture and murder of USA, US DEA agent Enrique Kiki Camarena led to re- revelations of mask drug cultivation operations and high-level governmental corruption, resulting in enormous U.S. pressure to intensify counter-drug efforts in Mexico. This was followed by a series of high-level arrests that resulted in the splintering of the Guadalajara cartel and subsequent competition between the Sinaloa, Tijuana, and Gulf cartels in the 90s. All right, let's break that down for a second. It says the torture and murder of Asian Camarena led to revelations of mass, massive drug cultivation operations and high-level governmental corruption. I, I'm, to me, that's the cart in front of the horse a little bit. Um, certainly, the idea that there were large operations large drug operations was known prior to Agent Camarena's death. I mean, remember, Buffalo was in November of 1984. So I'm concerned. I'm just curious as to the idea that his murder led to revelations about the cultivation operations. Now, certainly... 
it may well be that as part of the investigation into his murder, other things were, you know, became known. There is, of course, no question that as a result of the murder of Agent Camarena, whatever you want to call the connection between Rafael Caro Quintero, Ernesto Fonseca, and Felix Gallardo in Guadalajara was disrupted because within the next few years, at least with respect to Felix Gallardo in the next few months with respect to Rafa and, and Fonseca, they were arrested and Felix Gallardo's arrest did lead to the um, the formalization, I'm going to call it, of the plazas and the plaza bosses kind of taking over and establishing what we now call cartels, right? Keep in mind, prior to Agent Camarena's death, nobody called it the Guadalajara cartel. And I think there's a reason for that. I think the structure, the organization, the interrelationship between those traffickers and others. Remember, there were others who were involved. And also keep in mind that even in Guadalajara, at the time of Agent Camarena's abduction, there were lots of other narcotics traffickers. Remember many, many episodes back, we talked to Agent Kirkendall and said, hey, immediately after you realized Agent Camarena was missing, you know, did you have suspects? Did you think it was Rafa? Did you think it was Felix Gallardo? And he said, we were pretty sure it was one of the drug traffickers, but we didn't know which one. And also remember, contrary to what seems to be the common perception, the DEA didn't even have a picture of Carl Quintero when Agent Cameron was picked up. So while it might be nitpicking, I think it's important. And then, you know, when you talk about the splintering of the Guadalajara cartel, and the subsequent, as they call it, competition between the Sinaloa, Tijuana, and Gulf cartels, some of that was really personality-driven, don't you think? Remember, remember <laughs> the discussion we had about El Chapo. And, you know, we can spend a lot of time going back and forth on exactly his leadership role vis-a-vis El, uh, El Mayo and others and the time frame and all of that. But some of the competition between organizations, between the AFO organization in Tijuana, the competition and fighting between the Sinaloa cartel and the BLO. Some of that came just from the personality of the characters involved, right? The, the fights between the Ariano Felix brothers and El Chapo. El Chapo may be betraying one of the Beltran Leva brothers that then precipitates the fights between the Sinaloa and the BLO. So I 
My point here, and yes, there is a point, is that some of this is personality-driven as much as it is organizationally driven. And I think that's really important. Okay, so we talked about the first factor they said that contributes to this cycle of competition and violence, and one of them was the internal rivalries. Um, It goes on. Continued escalation and militarization of counter-drug efforts contributed to the escalation of conflict between the cartels and the Mexican government, particularly in the 1990s and 2000s. Certainly, we've seen and we've talked about that. The frequent corruption of counter-drug efforts at high levels further exacerbated sorry, competition among criminal organizations as government officials have secretly protected one cartel while pursuing its rivals. And we saw that play out on a national stage in the trial of Hanaro Garcia Luna that just concluded a, a week or two ago in New York, right? The idea that Hanaro Garcia Luna was aiding El Chapo, was helping El Chapo. And we've seen other examples where it certainly appears that relationships between cartel leaders and law enforcement, both at the national and the local level, have been used to promote and advance one group, one cartel, one drug trafficking organization amongst others. Okay. The other thing that they they talk about, and it was mentioned earlier that I think is, is interesting, is the... N- nimbility, (laughs) I'm going to call it, of the cartels to adjust to different situations. So much like a regular business will look at the environment surrounding that business and the successful ones anticipate changes and adapt their business to things going on in the area in which they transact their business, whether that's locally, nationally, internationally. And I think you can see over time, the ones that do better, the ones that last longer, and and those aren't, aren't always the same people, but those are the ones who anticipate the trends. Drug cartels have done this, right? One of the ways they've really done this is by knowing which drugs are coming next, heroin, cocaine, and by, uh, you know, introducing new products or better products, enhanced products, which it both does two things. One, it can introduce new players into the market, and two, it can destabilize the power dynamics between organizations. So it says, which I think is interesting, we want to talk about CJNG, and it really says this is what promoted and made CJNG so powerful. And it says, um, you know, the, the rise of CJNG was 
largely on the backs of it being a pioneer in synthetic drugs like methamphetamine and then fentanyl, and now we have others. So it says here that, and remember, this is like a year old information, but it says um, the most conservative estimates by government agencies indicate that the CJNG is present in at least 23 out of 32 Mexican states, while others indicate it could be as many as 29. I submit to you it's probably more now. This represents at least a 44% increase in CJNG's geographic reach since late 2015. Most of CJNG's growth seems to be focused in the central states of Mexico, including Mexico City, and along strategic drug corridors in the northern border, such as Tijuana, Juarez, and Nuevo Laredo. One more time, I'm sorry. Nuevo Laredo. So, I think that that's, again, a, a, a certainly interesting um, how they talk about the rise of CJNG and its, its clear power. A few minutes ago, my mind went to kind of the tech industries, right? And so, you have lots of regional players that came up during the tech rise. And lots of them have come and gone and been bought out by others. And in Mexico, you've seen lots and lots of, of different groups. Remember, you know, you had the Zetas, you had La Familia Mia Shokan, you had the Knights Templar, you had lots of others. And even now, you've got Los Rojos and different groups. And then you had, you know, kind of the IBM, the Sinaloa cartel that's still out there. And, and, you know, in some respects, um, you know, CJNG is like Google. <laughs> it came out and, and, and amongst all the, or, or Amazon or, you know, whatever you want to think of, but amongst all the, the big players in that tech boom, it's the one that really survived. And then you still have some of the old players that survived somehow, you know, whether you want to call it IBM or Walmart or whatever, but that's the Sinaloa cartel. And I kind of, I like that analogy. Um, and I, I think that uh, it's interesting if you think of it in that terms to see where things are going to go. And we're going to talk in just a second about kind of the cult of personalities. Um, one other thing that they really talk about that I think is is fascinating is the change in um, in the government of Mexico and how that created um, opportunities and things. So, one of the things that that they talked about was the when the pre totally dominated Mexican politics there was a greater ability to influence on a more national level because everybody was controlled by the pre in the government, right? So state, local, almost always dominated by pre, uh, military, etc. And that when the pre faltered and other groups became more powerful in Mexican government, 
that allowed for more regionalization, the growth of, you know, newer groups and, um, you know, the fact that there was more regional control from a governmental and a military standpoint precipitated a lot of these newer organizations. Here's um, something else I want to talk about, the, the cult of personality and kind of the, the um, removal of El Chapo. And I'm just going to read a little bit of what it says. So El Chapo's removal and the subsequent rise of the CJNG has also fueled violence in Baja, California, particularly in the border city of Tijuana. When the CJNG entered the Baja scene around 2016, the rather depleted Ariano Felix organization's remaining sales began to align with the CJNG in an effort to bolster their position vis-a-vis the Sinaloa cartel. This alliance gave rise to a regional branch of the CJNG known as the uh, CTNG, Tijuana New Generation Cartel, which was charged with seizing control of Tijuana trafficking corridor away from the Sinaloa cartel. However, media reports have consistently pointed to the existence of a group of AFO holdouts led in part by Pablo Huerta Nuno, who have actively resisted any alliance with the CJNG and remain committed to preserving the AFO as a separate, independent organization. This has resulted in a three-way conflict in Tijuana and is currently fueling elevated levels of violence in the city. And they then talk about how similar things have played out in areas of of, um, Chihuahua uh, and other areas, including Nuevo Laredo in particular. So I think that that all is is fascinating. One of the things that that I wonder, and, and doesn't really get talked about in here too much, is the idea of what happens to CJNG and or the Sinaloa cartel if one of their major leaders is taken. So what happens if El Mayo is arrested or dies? And and for sure dies, not not rumor dies, but dies, dies. Same thing with El Mencho. And one of the things, again, that I think separates the cartels today from the alleged cartels of the 1980s is an organizational structure designed to sustain, designed to deal with the idea that El Mencho is sick and has been sick, that El Mayo has been sick, that El Mayo is older. But as we've all seen, the fact that, you know, that there's a structure in place doesn't always mean that it follows that way, right? You know, CJNG in large part formed because of disputes with with the destruction of, of a cartel, right? You know, and, and I think about Los Chapitos and I think about like the Vanderbilts and, 
you know, the Carnegies and stuff. And there's always one level down where sooner or later it transfers to a son and then to a son and then to a son who just screws up <laughs> and everything that was worked for dissipates. Uh, and, and that's where I think I, I wonder and if there are DEA agents, former agents listening who have made it this far, I'm really interested in the degree to which there is planning for how do we exploit, we being law enforcement, the U.S. or Mexico, how do we exploit the likely repercussions of a even a temporary power vacuum if El Mencho dies, if El Mayo dies or are arrested, if more of Los Chapitos are arrested, what happens then? And how, from a law enforcement perspective, can we deal with that? All right. Last thing I want to let, talk about is, again, this is 2021-ish. So for the most part, this report goes through 2021. So it's a little bit old uh, it, you know, because things move pretty quickly. But it talks a lot about kind of a new framework, the U.S.-Mexico Bicentennial Framework for Security, Public Health, and Safe Communities, also known as the Bicentennial Framework. And that part has three main goals. And I think it's worth laying these out again just in light of what we've seen in recent months with respect to Garcia Luna, with respect to the arrest of Rafael Caracantero, with respect to the arrest of Ovidio Guzman and its proximity to the meetings between AMLO and President Biden. So three goals of uh, this bicentennial framework. Goal one, protect our people by promoting public health approaches to substance abuse, addressing the root causes of violence, and building sustainable, healthy, and secure communities. We've talked about that a lot. You can't, you know, in my mind, you can't stop the drug trade simply by trying to stop the traffickers. You also have to stop the demand. Which one's more important, we can, you know, we can debate, but it has to be both. Goal two, prevent trans-border crime by improving detection and interdiction of illicit smuggling of synthetic drugs and precursor chemicals, firearms, people, and wildlife. And number three, pursue criminal networks by disrupting illegal financial networks strengthening investigations and prosecutions of organized crime, and increasing bilateral cooperation on international extraditions. So I think that that, that part is also very fascinating, given what, given what has happened recently. Right? In my newsletter today, we talk about something that happened this week. The U.S. Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control sanctioned eight Mexican companies linked to timeshare fraud on behalf of the CJNG. 
And there's a quote in here. As CJNG has consolidated territory over the past decade, it has added other crimes to its core activity of drug trafficking. In tourist destinations such as Puerto Vallarta, CJNG has become heavily engaged in timeshare fraud, which often targets U.S. citizens. This crime, which can defraud victims of their life savings, results in another significant revenue stream for the cartel and strengthens its overall criminal enterprise. So I think one of the strongest avenues that is available to anti-drug law enforcement efforts is to attack them on these other areas, you know, find ways to seize assets. And I think it's going to be fascinating to watch how the U.S. government, the DEA, the Office of the Treasury, um, other organizations work to harm the cartels where it really hurts at the money level, in addition to just trying to stop the flow of drugs into the U.S. And certainly, you know, that that um, that drug bust in Arizona 10 days ago or so was huge, right? I don't care what group that is. That's huge and is going to hurt. You know, if you go back again, think about like the the uh, the French Connection thing they talked about, how much of that really was getting to the money as well as to the people. And the last thing that this report says, and then I'll end now. Here, um, here's their last, maybe the last paragraph in, in the report and in their conclusion. While it is commendable that President Lopez Obrador has abandoned the failed kingpin strategy, Mexico still needs an alternative strategy, a series of deliberate steps to reduce the power of organized crime and overall levels of violence. Recent developments in U.S.-Mexico security cooperation may help to achieve these goals, but the path ahead remains long and uncertain. And I think that's, that's an apt way to describe it, even as we've seen the new events again in the last few months, Ovidio Guzman, Genero Gar- Garcia Luna, Rafael Caracintero, there's still a lot of work to be done. It'll be interesting to see where it goes. All right. That was a lot longer than intended, uh, so forgive me. But I found it interesting. Um, and as always, if you did, let me know if there's other areas you'd like me to go. If you want me to stay away from this kind of high-level, um, almost academic analysis, let me know. Also, double-check um, or, or take a look at the YouTube channel, Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena, if you're interested at all. Something news coming on there today, a couple of little things today, a couple other things later this week. And then we'll be back next week with Cartels, Conspiracies, and Camarena. Thanks a lot for listening.